0: Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So we are in part seven of our series here in James. Uh, we're kind of, we're a little past the halfway mark, I'd say, uh, which is exciting because James isn't a really that big of a book. But it's so rich and so meaty and so full of amazing things that we need to learn about. You guys can have the lights on in the nursery if you want. I'm the only one who sees it. I'm not easily distracted, unless it's right now, in which case, I guess I got distracted. But seriously, if you want lights on, don't worry about it. Where were we? Oh, yeah, James. See, I got distracted. I, I just love how James is just so full of practical truth. And when we, when, with a book like this, if we just rush through it, we miss so many juicy morsels of things that are, can really help us in our life. So that's why I'm, I'm just glad that we're taking this verse by verse and we're really sinking our teeth in and understanding. So as I was reading uh, James this week or in the second half of chapter 3, something kind of made me think about myself. For some reason... With the personality that I have, I love it. I love it when people ask me questions. I love being asked to think and to to answer things because I just love thinking through questions or troubleshooting or, or problem solving or dreaming or philosophizing or whatever, just to understand things better. I like it when people ask me about the Bible, about life. They maybe come to me and they, they ask me about something that they're going through or they ask me something about myself, no matter what it is. I just love hearing questions. And on top of that, I'm even I'm even thrilled to ask people questions by nature I would consider myself a question asker, especially, I love asking the question, why? My inner three-year-old, I guess I've never really grown out of. So every, when people do things, when people say things, when people think things, when, when there's uh, something that happens a certain way, I have to ask Why? Why does it happen that way? Why does someone do this? Why did you say that? What makes you think this? I always got to know what's behind what we see on the surface. And for some people, they think I'm just incredibly annoying. (laughs) Nervous laughter ripples through the crowd, okay? And for some people, they're like, okay, yeah, I I should ask more questions, too, because this is helpful. We understand things when we ask questions. So the interesting thing is, the reason why I was thinking all this is because James starts out with a question in our passage today, and I wondered, man, we've heard a few questions from him. How many questions does James ask in these five chapters of his letter? He asks 23 questions. I find that really interesting. Now, why do you think that is? Why? And I'm I'm genuinely asking you, and I would love for you to answer, because I love asking questions. Why would Pastor James ask questions to the people that he's writing this letter to? Any ideas? So they can help them reflect on their life. Why do you think he wants them to reflect on their life, Melissa? So change their ways. So why do you think they need to change? Follow <laughs> oh, Jesus. So what's up with following Jesus? Why is that a no, I'm just kidding. See what I'm doing there? I love, I love asking the why. I was waiting. I had this planned all week, and I could not wait to see who the brave soul was that I could just totally... Well, anyway, you did great, by the way. Yeah, So, but imagine when we ask these kinds of questions, it actually causes us to go deeper. Instead of just staying on the surface, we say... Why would a pastor ask that, you know? And why would he want me to grow closer to Jesus? And wow, am I close to Jesus? Am I not? You know, all these things actually do a huge benefit for us. So I'm going to pray one more time. And then we're going to dive into this question that James starts with here in uh, 3.13. Father God, thank you for these questions that James is asking. And I pray that the one that we're going to be tackling right off the hop today would be something that we're willing to answer. Amen. All right, so here we are. Going into James 3, we're going to look at verses 13 to 18 this morning. So the first part of verse 13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? So that's the question that Pastor James gives us. Now, once again, if we want to answer this question, we might need to ask a couple of questions of our own. If, we need to, if we're going to understand what James is truly asking us, we need to ask a couple of questions. And I I think it's it's important for us to say, well, what does it mean, James, to be wise and understanding? What are you asking of us here? So let's let's look at the definition of these two words because on the surface, we may understand them one way, but remember, these words were not written in English originally, so sometimes the meaning isn't quite what it seems. So the word uh, wise here talks about someone whose actions are led and directed by their fear and reverence for God. That's the definition of what it means to be wise. That's interesting, eh? Because when I look at the word wise, I think, oh, someone who knows a lot of stuff. No, that's not at all what it means. So that's why it's good for us to ask so we know what James is asking us. And the second thing is understanding means it talks about knowledge gained from a long-term and personal acquaintance. So understanding things, maybe sometimes we see that and we we think about book smarts, like someone can read about how an engine works and they understand it. Actually, that's not it at all. It's not about book smarts or, or distance learning. It's about a close personal acquaintance experiencing something or someone close up to the point where you can say, I understand you. Now, my wife and I have been married for 14 years, and she's just starting to be able to say that about me. Some of us are more complex than others, though. So that's just how it goes. Okay, no, no biters on that one. Okay, that's cool. So from this definition, of, we, we need to know that this kind of knowledge or the wisdom that God, or that James is talking about here is experiential. As Christians, we need to have a close and personal acquaintance with Jesus, and each time we learn something from him, it actually, actually, it's like a building block, and it sets the stage for the next thing that we can learn to be built on what we've already learned. I think that's what the understanding is talking about. And I think that's where the wise piece comes from. Because if I don't fear God, if I'm not reverent for him, I won't care about what I have learned or what I should be learning because I'm disinterested in the things of God. I'm more interested in the things of Jeff. So now that we understand wise and understanding here, let's read this question again. The question that James is asking us is, whose life? is directed by their deep reverence for God and from the time that they have spent with him. That's what I think James is really asking. And if you think of the question that way, I'm going to read it one more time. Whose life is directed by their deep reverence for God and from the time that they have spent with him? I think that is a great question. Would you agree? Yeah. Like That is, a, that is an amazing question. Because I want to raise my hand and say, me, that's me, James. You are, you are describing me. That should be our desire after we hear a question like that. So then the interesting thing is that James actually goes on and he answers his own question in the second part of verse 1. He says, so we'll read the whole thing. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Same definition, wisdom to wise, as we saw in the first part of that verse. So just like the relationship between faith and deeds that we read about in chapter 2, wisdom and understanding are also shown through our God-honoring actions. I can't just say that I have faith. I can't just say that I'm wise and understanding. It is shown by how I live my life, right? That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So let's, let's... piece these together here a little bit because James says that we reveal our wisdom and understanding through, first of all, our good life. And, And our good life is an outward sign of an inward good. It's basically us behaving outwardly with the character that God has developed internally inside of us. Some examples of this would be if we're able to turn the other cheek, When someone insults us or hurts us, instead of getting back at them, we turn the other cheek because in our character, we know that our outward actions should not be to get back at them, right? Maybe it's the ability to forgive and not hold the grudge. That would be an outward sign of our inward character. Or maybe the discipline to not take part in, in spreading gossip or slander. Once again, that's an outward discipline that we can only have if we are already inwardly disciplined in our relationship with Jesus. All of those take wisdom and understanding, and they lead to us living what James calls a good life. It's pretty exciting to know, oh, okay, so this is how it works. The second thing is James also mentions deeds done in humility. And you could say the word humility here is kind of interesting because in a couple other translations, they also use the words gentleness or meekness. When we are able to do something with humility, gentleness or meekness, our motivation comes from a good place and the action carried out is in a God honoring way. Because when you act in humility, you're not acting in the flesh or in your own interests or desires. You're acting in what's good for someone else. So this is what would be considered a good deed. It's for God's glory, not our own. Quick story here. So this week, uh, someone... I. I don't know why, but they just felt in their heart that they needed to send me a text message. And this text message was probably one of the most encouraging things I have received since we've been living here in Kandu. And I'm going to tell you why. It was was encouraging for two reasons. First of all, they said that they were thinking of me and the message from this past Sunday. When someone tells me that they were thinking of, you know... The, the things that I was sharing and trying to help us understand and walk us through, the things that I spent hours and hours studying during the week and then try to communicate here on Sunday, when someone says that they were thinking about those things, that does so much for me. It's like, oh, great. I am so glad that we're running together, that we're interested in the same things. It's like a unifying piece of encouragement. And the second thing they told me is that I love this. They told me that they were praying for me. Amen. Yeah. And they encouraged me with scripture, not with a compliment. Like Jeff, your beard was on point on Sunday. Nothing like that. No, they said they actually shared scripture with me to encourage me. And you know what that does so much for me? Because hollow compliments like, hey, nice job or whatever. Those are fine. Fine. But I want to encourage you with the word of God because that's what I need as well. This person just understood me. And man, was it ever encouraging. This, this encouragement was given, in my opinion, with tremendous wisdom and understanding. Just like what James is talking about here today. And I just, I loved it. I received it well. And I, I texted this person. Well, I, I called this person back. I was just so thankful. Actually, I had a hard time keeping the tears back because it just meant so much that a thoughtful word that honored God was directed towards me. So thank you to that person once again. In my opinion, that's the wisdom and understanding that James is referring to. It's that kind of wisdom and understanding that enables us to live a good life filled with good deeds like encouraging someone else. So here's the thing, this is where James sets the stage here in verse 13, but now we're going to head on to 14 and it starts with my favorite word in the Bible, but, because you know that there's a contrast in thinking coming up anytime we see that word, right? So verse 14 says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So when we see the word but, like I said, we, we know that there's a contrast. We've, we've read about one idea, and now we're reading about something that is contrary to that first idea. So we know that James is getting into something here that we need to be very cautious about. We've read about the wise and understanding, and now James is telling us about the bitter envy and selfish ambition that can take siege of our hearts and not allow us to operate in wisdom and understanding. Humility, which is a product of wisdom and understanding, is a direct opposite of, uh, of envy. Sorry, I lost my spot. Or of selfishness. So humility and selfishness are total opposites. Where humility puts the focus on honoring God, envy and selfishness put the focus on honoring ourselves. You, would you agree with that? Am I understanding that piece correctly? I, I think so too. I, I think that's kind of where this is going. Chuck Swindoll, legendary pastor, right? He says that envy and selfishness stem from a need that all of us have to some degree to compare ourselves with someone else. We compare all sorts of things in our lives, don't we? We compare houses, careers... Uh, even churches. We compare our pastors and our worship styles. We compare opinions and viewpoints on politics, education, sports, the economy, and the list goes on and on. The bitter envy and selfish ambition James brings up here fuels our need to compare ourselves with others and to be right. If we were only fueled by humility, those desires, they wouldn't drive us, the comparison thing, because we'd be like, hey, it's cool. I don't mind. You do what you want to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to love you nonetheless. It doesn't matter how different we are. Humility kind of bridges the gap. But envy and selfishness are very much a struggle for many of us in this life. So we end up comparing ourselves to others. We'd likely never admit this out loud, but in our heart, I know I'm guilty of this. We might think something like, hey, that person just said something that I disagree with. I need to let them know that I think they're wrong. Have you ever thought that? I know I have. And, you know, if I'm honest, I need to stop and kind of give myself a bit of a pep talk and say, Jeff, why? Why do you need to let someone else know that you think they're wrong? Why do you need to let them know that you have a differing opinion Why? Why? What does it accomplish? What do you gain from that, right? I think that's a really good question. But I think the answer is this. Because out of envy and selfishness, we need to make sure that people know how we feel. Because selfishness makes a conversation about us instead of about searching or or striving for understanding. And this causes us to fall into two perils that James mentions. Boasting and lying. People who boast will usually talk endlessly to anyone who will listen because they're talking about themselves. They're talking about their accomplishments, their feats, their life, right? And they just go on and on and on because they want people to be impressed with them. They want to, they're instead of saying, Hey, would you just encourage me? They just talk and talk and talk until we say, wow, yeah, that's great. Oh, oh, look at the time, you know, and it's kind of one of those things. And in doing that boastful people, Did you know that they end up lying to themselves? They are lying to themselves because envy, selfishness, and boasting are sinful practices. Am I correct in saying that? Okay. So when we sin, we rebel against Jesus, who is the truth, right? And when we rebel against the truth, that's when we live in a lie. So when I operate with selfishness, envy, bitterness, you know, boastfulness, pride, or lying... I'm operating counter to the spirit of Jesus Christ that dwells within me. So that's a very important thing for us to understand. That's why James says that envy and selfishness lead to boasting and lying. Not just lying to others, but we actually lie to ourselves. So certainly, we need to watch out for these things. That's why we have this contrast here. We see the good, and then we see the, the bad. So that we're aware of what they are, we identify them and only live by what James and the Bible says is good. Verse 15 continues here, uh, talking about this quote-unquote wisdom. Such wisdom, this enviness and selfishness, or envy and selfishness, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That's that's an intense verse. So wisdom, this quote unquote wisdom, is not wise at all. It's not from God. It doesn't encourage us to, in, to boast. Or he, or God doesn't encourage us to boast thinking of ourselves and always being right. That's not what he's all about. So that's not what we're supposed to be about. This so-called wisdom that we see here in verse 15 is totally contrary to all that God has redeemed us to be. James condemns this way of living, calling it an earthly or secular form of wisdom. It's spiritual and even demonic. Where this fake wisdom is allowed to live, chaos is present. Disorder and every evil practice quickly follow envy and selfishness. You know, like sometimes I remember in school, they would talk about how, you know, cigarettes or marijuana are like a gateway drug and they lead to all sorts of other nasty things that are even worse than those, okay? I think what James is saying here is that selfishness and envy are a gateway sin. If those things are allowed to fester in our lives, boy, oh boy, do the floodgates ever open. And every evil practice, every evil practice then has an avenue to enter our lives and just cause so much destruction. I want to pause here and just talk about the word demonic for a little bit. In my life, demonic isn't a word that I throw around carelessly. It's, so it's, it's serious when we see it in the Bible, right? It's a serious accusation to call something demonic. As I looked at this verse this week, I wondered, well, how many other verses in the Bible say that something, some sort of practice that you and I are capable of is demonic, and you know, nothing actually came to the top of my mind. I know there's lots of places where you know, say this practice is divisive, or this practice is evil, or this practice is fleshly, or something like that. But the actual word "demonic," I couldn't. Ha- I couldn't think of anything off the top of my mind. So I did a quick. I did a quick search. I used an online tool that you can search for the word demonic throughout the entire Bible. And I looked it up in multiple translations, just in case it showed up a lot of times in this translation, but only a few times in this one. The interesting thing is, and this may be a little bit surprising to us, is that in the entire Bible, the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation, James 3.15 is the only verse that uses the word demonic to describe a practice that you and I are capable of. That's interesting to me. So I thought to myself, well, surely there are all sorts of other nasty, wicked, sinful practices that are demonic, aren't they? What about murder? What about rape and, and violence? What about vandalism and abuse? Those things, I would say, they at least have an essence of the demonic in them. And you know what? I think they all are heinous and awful acts, but here's what I think is going on. I think that James maybe reserves the word demonic for bitter envy and selfish ambition because it can exist in every single one of us. And it's not easy for us to detect in ourselves. That's why it's demonic. Wow. Okay. So many other sins are very obvious and easy to identify, right? Like, if one of us in our church just had this habit of killing people, we would, we would pretty quickly figure it out. Man, that's, that's the fourth person this week, Leona. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Leona is a very gentle, wonderful woman. She would never do that. Not that I know of. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but see, you see what I mean? The obvious things are obvious. We can see them and we can pick them out and say, whoa, what am I doing? Or if I were to do something like that, you would come to me and say, Jeff, what are you doing? That's obviously not something that you should be doing. But envy and selfishness lurk underneath the surface. They are subtle. They linger. They can build up over time. And Satan knows that they are his best way, in my opinion, that envy and selfishness are the best way to, for Satan to infiltrate a church. Have you ever thought about that? We are, I mean, hey, we all stand for Christ, right? In a couple of weeks, there's going to be two people, at least, who are going to get baptized. And that is their outward expression that they stand for Jesus Christ. Do you think that, that Satan is going to say, oh, shucks, I guess, I guess I lost that one. And he'll move on to someone else. Never. Because we stand for Christ, that's why, that's why Satan comes against us with such ferocity. He wants to slow us down and knock us down. He wants to cause us to be useless Christians. That's what we have to be aware of, these kind of things. Paul warns us that, that this idea of the demonic attacking Christians will happen. In 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Okay. So James isn't the only guy who's harping on this. This is actually something that is taught about in other places. How does someone follow a deceptive spirit, friends? They do it ignorantly. Nobody knows that they're following a deceptive spirit because they are deceived. If I knew that I was deceived, I would say, oh, what am I doing? I can't do this anymore. Someone's tricked me. I'm wise to you now. But when you're deceived, you do things Because you don't know any better. When my brother and I were younger, we were probably like Easton's age, maybe a little younger than that, and we were standing at an arcade game in the mall in Winkler. And it was a racing game, and and you're supposed to stay on the track, obviously, and get as far as you can, and it would speed up and speed up as you got further along the track. Two older guys, teenagers, came up behind us, and while my brother was on this game, they said, hey, uh, the object of this game is to go to the side of the track and to hit those big black squares. And those were buildings. And every time my brother did that, he would crash. And I thought to myself, that can't be right. That can't be the object of the game. But I remember my brother saying, and you know what? We were young and naive. I remember him saying, Jeff, look, I'm, I'm killing it. I am doing so good at this game. But really, he was deceived. And he didn't know it, right? That's why he thought everything was going well, but it wasn't. So... Satan works to deceive those of us who are inside the church. And we have to understand what is good according to God, not what is good according to us. And this is Satan's plan to tear us down. That's why we need to know what he's up to so that we won't fall into it. Real quick, knowing that the demonic comes against us in order to cause division and things like that. Satan's working against us to cause us to move away from the ideal plan of Christ. Two ways that we can make sure that we are not being deceived because nobody wants to live that way. So here's, here's a quick way for us to figure this out. Number one is to spend consistent time in the word of God. And I, you know what? You may say, Jeff, you've talked about this forever. You bet. And we probably will forever because this is something that Christians are going to need to work on forever. The moment we think, I know enough of the Bible. I'm, I'm good to go. That's the moment where we have been deceived, right? So we need to be in the word of God on our own so that we can understand the truth because this is a word of truth that God has given us to live by. And the more we know the truth, the easier it's going to be able to see something that is deceptive. It's like, well, hang on a second here. That doesn't belong in the church. That doesn't belong in my life because the Bible says, boom, boom, boom. And we're going to have evidence because we have hidden God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. Exactly, right? So we need to be in the word. And number two, and I can't, I can't overstate this enough, we need to spend time with people who live by the word of God as well. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. I need you. I need you. And you need me. We need each other. We are the ones who spur each other on. We are the ones who inspire each other to walk with Christ. I know things that you need to know. You know things that I need to know from you. We are a benefit to one another. And we are how each other stays accountable and on the straight and narrow, not wandering off onto a path of destruction. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I study your teachings very carefully so that I will not sin against you. That's a, another way that, to look at this whole thing. So two, those are two simple ways in which we can definitely stay on track and not fall into deception. So back to our James passage here. Is wisdom that is based on bitter envy and selfish ambition demonic? Absolutely. That so-called wisdom is good for only one thing bringing chaos and disorder to God's church and acting as a gateway to all sorts of other evils. Let it be known that it is bad in all forms. So we're going to move on here. Now we've, we've understood how James has kind of set the stage. And then what he does is he kind of comes back. He started with verse 13, talking about the good wisdom. He highlights the bad wisdom and it's downfall. And now in verse 17, he comes back and he talks once again about this wisdom from heaven. So he says, starting in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So we get the whole list. These are the identifiers. These are what we know we should be looking for in order to say this is godly wisdom or this is not, right? These are the criteria. So let's just quickly go through these one by one so that we understand them. The first thing it says is that wisdom from heaven is pure. Pure means... Undefiled by sin. Oh, sorry, I'll just stay on that one. It means undefiled by sin. It's not wisdom based on envy, greed, selfishness, revenge, personal preference, or anything sinful. It's only based on the characteristics of Christ. It's pure and good, entirely pleasing and obedient to God. That's the kind of wisdom that is pure, okay? The next thing it says is that it's peace-loving. And peace-loving is exactly what it sounds like. It's wisdom that loves to work for peace, We know that we are using wisdom from heaven when the things that we say and the ways that we act promote peace and wholeness with God from between us and God and between us and others. That's peace loving wisdom. It also says that the wisdom from heaven is considerate. A person filled with heavenly wisdom is someone who doesn't jump to conclusions but tries to understand the entire situation. They consider all the angles. They consider everyone's point of view. They consider everyone who's involved or everyone who could be affected. They consider other people's points of view and they don't speak only on what they think is important. It's considerate. Wisdom from heaven is also submissive. Other translations use the word reasonable here. Either way, a person who is submissive or reasonable is ready to listen, willing to yield, eager to obey. A person with heavenly wisdom is easy to come into agreement with because they are already inclined to be agreeable or cooperative. Isn't that the kind of person that we want to work with? Yeah. So that's the kind of person that I want to be as well. Wisdom from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit. A person with heavenly wisdom is a person full of mercy and compassion towards others. They have concern for them and are willing to empathize with them because God's love is dwelling in their heart. They easily put themselves in someone else's shoes. And as a result, good fruit Good deeds for God or, or good deeds that honor God are produced in the life of a person who has this heavenly wisdom. Luke 6 verse 45 says that good deeds flow out of a good heart. So naturally mercy and good fruit will flow out of someone who has those things already intrinsically intertwined into their heart. Wisdom from heaven is also impartial. Other translations say unwavering. This means the meaning is the same though. It means that wisdom from heaven is consistent. It doesn't matter if we're using God's wisdom with our best friend, with our spouse, or with someone here at our church. It's meant to be used consistently and without favoritism in any of those places. I don't apply one version of wisdom to my family, for instance, and then treat everyone at church with another version of wisdom. If it's godly wisdom, it's going to be the same at home as it is in church, as it is in the workplace. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, the consistency piece of this is so important. And finally, wisdom from heaven is also sincere. In other words, it's not hypocritical. Wisdom like this earnestly desires the truth to be in play. There are no hidden agendas with heavenly wisdom, and we don't withhold some facts or some truth of a matter to make sure that things play out the way that we want them to. We make decisions based on the whole truth without swaying things in one direction or another in order to suit our own desires. What a great tool for examination this verse is. If we want to know what kind of wisdom we are operating in, we have to look at this list that we've been given here in James 3.17 and check ourselves and our motives against every piece of that criteria. And the more important the decision, the more people that it affects, the more time we ought to be spending cross-checking our hearts against this thing. Once we do that, we can either proceed with confidence or we can say, hmm, I'm a little off base here and a correction needs to be made. You know, so that's, that's the passage for today. One more thing, just want to spend a few minutes on this. For some reason, when I, when I read this passage, I was reading it in the context of a leader. Like leaders need this kind of wisdom. People of influence need this kind of wisdom. And which, which is absolutely true. I don't know why, but that's just where my mind went. But the more I thought about it, I think that this actually pertains to other people as who are not leaders, but they might be led in a certain situation. They can respond with wisdom. After all, if you look at our world, are there more employees or employers? There's more employees, right? There's more people who are being led than there are in leadership. You can think about that in, in sports too. There's more players who are being coached than there are coaches who are coaching. There's more, there's more congregants than there are pastors typically in a church, right? So I think I just want to take a second here to really emphasize the, the piece of this wisdom in following, in, in being led and how we respond to those in authority over us. We can't control the way in which someone reaches a decision that affects our lives, and we don't always have a a say in the decision that they make that will affect us. But we can control if we will respond with heavenly wisdom. So I'm going to just run us through two scenarios. The first scenario is this. Someone makes a decision that we agree with. Okay, so it could, and in any context, but let's just, we'll assume church stuff for the most part here because we're Christians. James is writing to Christians, and that's kind of the context that we're in. So when a decision is made that we feel good about or we feel is right according to scripture, right, then it's something that we should think of ways in which we can help, help this good decision come to fruition. We should, we should think of ways, well, okay, if this is a decision that I agree with and it's godly, how can I help this decision to flourish? Consider the purpose statement of our church here for a moment. The purpose of this organization shall be to glorify God and promote Christian life and character through worship, instruction, evangelism, fellowship, and service. That's, that's our, our mission statement or our purpose statement in a nutshell. Based on what I see the Bible telling me to do, I can say, yeah, I agree with this. I think this is a good, a good thing. Because what I read here says the same thing as what is written in our church's constitution. So then, the question becomes, how can we respond with heavenly wisdom to support the purpose of this church? Because if we agree with the Bible, then we should also be in agreement with this church. If we don't, then we need to either have a conversation or we need to do some soul searching, right? Will we be passive and watch others get, you know, be active in their faith in supporting the purpose of this church? Or will we be active with the gifts that God has given us so that we can support the purpose that is outlined in our Constitution agreeable with Scripture? Will we demonstrate all the characteristics of godly wisdom or will we act with envy and selfishness? You see, here's the thing. I think it's possible that even when we agree with a decision, that we can still act with envy and selfishness. Because we may say, yeah, absolutely. That's the mission statement of our church. I agree with that 100%. Oh, you want me to do something? Oh, no, I'm too busy. I don't want to. Uh, No, that doesn't sound good. I mean, I can't. That's better. I can't. I'm unable to. The truth is, if we are not involved in the mission of this church in some sort of active way, do we actually support it? I don't see evidence for that in scripture. That's not Jeff Peters speaking. That's just me saying the Bible says that our faith and our wisdom are exemplified through our actions. That's all. That's all that it's saying here. That I don't see anything else. Now, I know that not every one of us is necessarily going to sign up to say, yes, I would love to lead games in Owana." If we're getting up there in years and have more gray hairs than colored hairs, it's okay to say that I don't want to do that because you could get mowed over by a bunch of cubbies and that wouldn't be comfortable. I don't want to put you in that position. Not all of us are necessarily going to say, yeah, I have a gift of teaching and I want to teach Sunday school. Not all of us can plan a church picnic. We just don't have that kind of gifting. But no matter who we are or what sort of gifts we have, all of us can pray, right? Yeah, we can support the work of the church through prayer, at least. All of us can encourage someone else who we see spending time week after week, giving of their time and their energy in a way that we can't. There's been seasons of my life when we had young kids, we couldn't be involved in everything the way we wanted to, but we certainly were trying our best to encourage people and pray and thank them. That's something that we can all do. So in in a situation where we agree with something, this is the least that we can do, be encouraging and prayerful. I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of my youth leaders, his name was Jake McFadden, an amazing guy. He actually was a former youth pastor, and their church kind of shrunk to the point where they, it didn't make sense for them to have a ministry there anymore, and their whole youth group came and joined ours. And one night, we were, doing, uh, we were doing a Bible study, and it was kind of a worship night, where we were going to be teaching our students about what it means to worship God. And we were trying to help them express themselves and experience freedom in worship. We were going to say, okay, during the song, we're just going to try this. We're just going to all try raising our hands during the chorus. Because you know what? Sometimes we're a little nervous. Some of us do it. Some of us don't. We're all going to do it together just to experience this and see. Maybe this is something that I've always wanted to do, but I felt so nervous that I couldn't do it on my own. By us all doing it together, we just eliminate that nervous piece, right? Now, Jake was in complete agreement. He says, yes, I want people to experience freedom in their worship. He came to me and said, Jeff, I've never thought of this idea before, and I'm actually a little nervous about it. I said, yeah, I totally get that, man. This is new for, for a lot of our sponsors and our youth. And he says, even though I'm nervous about it, Jeff, I trust you. Because I know your heart and I know your character and I know that I want our students to be able to experience this kind of freedom that we're trying to promote here in this youth group. Isn't that amazing? That Jake had an agreement. He had a a slight hesitation about how it should work. But because he agreed with the scriptural piece of it, he found a way to support it. And that, that humbled me so much as a leader. I thought that was just brilliant. Here's the other thing, though. Sometimes when we're in a certain situation, someone may make a decision that we disagree with. What do you do then? Because, man, that's when the flesh is working overtime. That's when division can very easily creep in and say, well, I disagree with that. So not only am I not going to support it, but I'm going to make sure that I find some other people to agree with me so that I will feel justified in my response. That is a place of evil. That's where every evil practice creeps in with envy and selfishness, right? So we got to be very careful in these, in these places. When we have a decision, especially in the church that we disagree with, that's where we need to go back to three seventeen and start asking some questions. We need to say, Lord Jesus, is there anything impure going on inside of me and my reaction to this decision that I need to deal with? God, am I striving for peace or is my reaction in this going to bring conflict? Am I considering someone else's interests here or is this really just about me? God, please show me how to submit to you and to be merciful to the person I'm going to respond to and to make a good, fruitful response for your kingdom. Jesus, would I respond like this to everyone or am I only responding in this way because I have bitterness towards this person that has made the decision? Lord, am I being sincere in my response or do I have a hidden agenda or secret motives that I'm not going to ever be honest about, but I'm going to work on them so I get my way? You know, a friend of mine, he told me about um, his grandpa who was a part of a church in, in Manitoba up in the area that we call the Interlake. It's between Lake Winnipeg and Lake Manitoba, north of the city of Winnipeg. And it's kind of a, kind of a redneck area. We love it. Affectionately known as the Interlake. But in this church, this is at the turn of the century, so like the early 1900s, they had a board meeting, and my friend's grandpa was on the board. And they, they were having a huge decision that they needed to make at this meeting as to whether or not they were going to consider bringing indoor plumbing into their church. It was coming through the area. They had an opportunity now to tap into this. They had a discussion, and my friend's grandpa was the only one out of everyone on this board who said, I don't think this is a wise way to spend our money. I think there are other things that we could do that would benefit the kingdom of God more. Everyone else disagreed and said, no, I think we should bring the plumbing in. They had a vote and everyone voted exactly as they had spoken. So he was the odd man out. They set a date at the end of the meeting when they were going to come to this church and do the work that they needed to do to bring this plumbing in. On that day... My friend's grandpa got there two or three hours before anyone else and he started digging the trench that they needed to bring this water in. When the other board members showed up, they, they came to him and said, what are you doing here? You, didn't even, you weren't even in favor of this decision. Why are you here working already? He said, because I'm not the deciding factor on this board and this church is my church, and I will work at anything I possibly can to maintain unity here, because it's not about me, it's about Jesus Christ. Isn't that like, isn't that the most brilliant, humble, wise, and understanding response that anyone could ever have? Like, it's, it's just so off the charts, that's the kind of godliness that I want to strive for because I just I don't see another example of that anywhere in my own life that I've even come close to. But I want to be that guy who says, it's not about me, Jesus. Your kingdom first and your will be done, not mine. I love that. I think that's so brilliant. So in operating with this kind of wisdom that we've talked about today, whether we're the person making the decision or responding to a decision that affects us, we then become peacemakers. That's where verse 18 from from this James passage says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peace comes when we are wise and understanding, acting in humility. Peacemakers here are people who look for ways to please the spirit of God. Rather than the spirit that they or the flesh that they operate in, sometimes Galatians 6:8 is the last verse I'm going to share. Uh, Worship team, you guys can start coming up here. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Wisdom is something that I pray for often in my life, and we're going to pause right now and, and pray for wisdom for our congregation as well. Let's let's bow together. Father God, what an absolutely incredible passage that we have looked at this morning. Jesus, I love that you gave James a spirit of just directness and clarity. Where we don't have to guess about what he's saying. He just spells it out for us. And then the application is up to us. Jesus, on behalf of every single person who calls the Christian Fellowship Church their church... And anyone who can hear my voice, maybe it's on the recording at home or or if they're a guest or whatever, for anyone who wants to have your will be done in their life, Jesus, I pray that your wisdom and your understanding would abide in our hearts. I pray that you would take control, Father God, and in humility, we would step back from anything that could be deemed as envious or selfish, and that we would say, your will be done, Father, not mine.